ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's an awful statistic that most of us have heard. In Australia, one woman a week is killed by her current or former partner. These women are loved by their families and friends. And of course, if they have children, then the greatest loss is theirs. The children who have lost a mother and many times to their own father's violence. Chanel Dawson is one of those children. But unlike most other victims, what happened in the Dawson family was played out in the public eye. It was a podcast, The Teacher's Pet, that helped refocus the criminal case against Chanel's father, Chris Dawson. And just last year, 40 years after Chanel's beloved mum, Lynn, disappeared from the family's Northern Beaches home, Chris Dawson was found guilty of her murder. For so long, what happened in Chanel's family has been told by other people. But now Chanel is telling her own story in the book, My Mother's Eyes. Hi, Chanel. Hi, Sarah. I want to start with your mum, with Lynn. Where did she grow up? She grew up in Clovelly. So Clovelly by the beach in Sydney, does that mean she spent a lot of time in the water as a kid? Yes, very much. Her and her siblings. There's a, um, an ocean pool just at the bottom of the hill where they live. And I know that they did, I guess, Saturday surf club or what it was. But Uncle Greg told me that they did laps in, those po- in that pool. And uh, I've got a photo of my mum at a swimming competition when she's probably a young teenager. I know that they were in the water a lot. And what kind of student was she at school, do you know? Well, I believe she was a prefect, so I guess she must have been a pretty good one. (laughs) How did she first meet Chris Dawson? I think they met at a dance when they were about 16 and were sort of high school sweethearts, I guess. So at Sydney Boys and Sydney Girls High School, so they weren't at the same school. You've seen footage of your mum when she was a a young woman. She appeared on an ABC TV show together with your father back in 1975. Why were they on TV? It was called Checkerboard. I think it was a documentary on twins. And I remember seeing that growing up, you know, on the old beta VHS (laughs) video that we had. And there was a few other things my dad had on that but I haven't seen it since I was a little kid. So Hedley Thomas, who did the podcast, found that in the archives and brought that treasure to our mm. family. How did your mum come across as a young woman? Well, I'm biased. So, <laughs> of course, I just think she's beautiful and warm and graceful and humble and obviously adored my father. So they were married young. Where Mm -hmm. did they set up home together? I think I had just been born, maybe, before they then moved to Bayview. So, um, yeah, so they set up in Bayview. Um, So it's on the northern beaches and it's sort of Banksia trees. Well, it was back then a lot bushier than it is now. Was your mum working outside the home before you and your sister came along? Before my sister and I came along, she... I'm not sure at what point she transitioned from nursing to working in childcare, but she was a registered nurse working in the childcare nearby. And I believe she took some time off when she had me. And then when my sister was still quite young, she returned back to the childcare centre. And so working closely with kids like that, she must have enjoyed children. Did she always Mm. want kids of her own? Yes, very much so. 
what sort of things did colleagues of hers and friends say about the sort of mother that she was with you and, and your sister when you were both little? The unanimous consent is that she was warm and loving and adored us and we were her world and I know her type of the nurturer, you know, and being a nurse and in childcare, obviously she had that quality. What about you, Chanel? Do you have any memories yourself at all of your mother? Unfortunately, no, just um, flashes of more traumatic ones, which have arisen in more recent years. So the time that your mother and father were living at home together and you were a little girl, you don't have any clear memories of what that was like? No, I don't. I believe perhaps the trauma has caused me to cut them out because I have I have strange little snapshots of sort of seemingly irrelevant things. Um, the bathtub that was in their bathroom or... Um, a toy that I was given, you know, sort of random things that don't really hold much significance. But when I look back at photos, I realise, oh, that was around the time my mum would have still been alive. So I have faith and hope that I will be able to access memories of her once I've moved more through the trauma. Your nana, your mum's mum, was worried about your mother and what was going on between her and, and her husband. And I think she wrote about that in a letter to her other daughter, Pat, to mm-hmm. your aunt, Pat. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the kind of thing that was worrying her in, uh, about the relationship between your mother and father? Well, I was oblivious to it at the time, but in more recent years with my nana's journals or diaries being used as evidence um, that my mum, which I'm sure she probably disclosed only the tip of the iceberg basically, but that they were having troubles and that my father was always angry at her and... I guess she insisted that they went to counselling together. And it was just a few days after your nana wrote this letter about her concerns about her daughter's marriage in January 1982 that your mum was gone. Mm. And what did your father say had happened? My father said that my mum had gone away for a while to get some time to herself. And on that day that she was suddenly not there in the house, mm. he took you and your sister to a swimming pool mm-hmm. where your mother had planned to meet with your nana and, and other family. What do you remember about that day at the pool? So it was the 9th of January and we were meant to be going with our mum and my, I don't know if my dad was already there as a lifeguard that day or something like that. We were meant to have a picnic with my mum's mum, our nana, and a friend of my dad's. And my dad supposedly, his story is that he dropped her off at the bus stop in the morning to return something to the shops. And that was the last he supposedly saw of her that morning. I don't remember at what point this this flash of memory came to me. I recalled, I think it's turnstiles or, you know, an, an, an entry point anyway. And... My memory is that my father's version of events, whatever he was recalling, was different to what I remembered it. And I tried to correct his version of events and I remember getting in trouble for it. He took me by the arm and took me away from whoever would have been there, probably Phil and my nana. And I don't know what he said. I just remember the feeling of being scolded 
being angry about it and knowing that what I was saying was true. And I guess probably feeling very confused, like why was, why was I getting in trouble for telling the truth? And um, I can feel the feeling in my body, but I don't recall what exactly was said. How long did it take your father to report your mother as missing to the police? It was quite a long time. I guess he was keeping up the pretense that she had been calling in and telling him she was fine and she just needed a bit more time. I think it was six weeks. And then he posted um, sort of one line in the local newspaper or something like that. Asking her to come home. Yeah. So he had been telling you and and her and your mother's family that they were in contact, that she was ringing and she I was okay. So, yeah. And as time went on, Chanel, what story was he telling you and your sister about why your mother hadn't come back home? He mostly said to me, and in more recent years, I don't know what happened to your mum. And he seemed very convincing when he would say that. But I think some of the stories that he may have he may have posed them as possible theories rather than that's what happened, uh, that maybe she went off with a religious cult, um, maybe she went to New Zealand. He told my nana that she went to the central coast to get away for a while, so my nana would go there regularly on the train because she didn't drive and hand out flyers and ask people if they'd seen her. And to you and your sister, it was clear that your mum had just chosen not to be with you, that it was mm. a choice that she was making not to be present mm. in your lives. Yeah, I guess that we grew up believing that, although I always believed because I never doubted that she loved us. I believe she must have had a mental breakdown or amnesia of some kind to have stayed away for so long. You and your sister had a, a teenage babysitter who'd moved into the family home at the end of 1981 and you didn't know this at the time, but she and your father were in a sexual relationship. And looking at it in today's terms, you know, he'd been grooming her. She was a PE student of his at high school and he wanted to be able to continue that. Was there for you then a, a moment after your mum had disappeared that you realised this teenager and your father were in a relationship? I don't have clear memories of that other than my dad saying they had to wait till she was 18 to get married and things like that. But I I think we were just told a version of events and we believed our dad and we just sort of probably celebrated the fact because that's all we had to go on, I guess. And if my mum was portrayed to be the bad person for leaving us, then there's probably sort of shame or... I guess we probably just felt glad because we liked the babysitter at the time. Do you remember their wedding? Were you there for that? I was there. I've got a couple of photos. At one point I went through and culled a bunch of my photos, never knowing I might actually want them one day, but, you know, just too much heartache. But I kept one photo of us sitting on some steps in our <laughs> ugly little cotton 80s-looking dress, puffy sleeves, and with our cousins. So this new person is brought into your family home. Your mum's not there. Were there photos of her? Was she talked about at all? Or was it just like she almost never existed in terms of the way the, the family spoke about your life? It was like she never existed. Um, no photos, no mention of her. 
I think that was one of the red flags for me once I got older too. As I, I guess I excused it in my mind thinking, oh, it caused my dad too much heartache. But when I looked back, I thought, no, even if the mother had abandoned the children, you could still talk about her or share some memories. And yeah, it was this taboo subject that we just didn't speak about. And if somebody from outside of the inner family, you know, someone we didn't see as often, maybe mentioned her, there was this uncomfortable silence. And they didn't know they weren't meant to mention her. Once Jay became pregnant, you all moved to Queensland. And so this teenager had gone from being a babysitter to being your stepmother. What do you remember about her attitude towards you and, and your sister? What did it feel like to be a child in that home? I recall liking her as a babysitter initially, and I'm not sure at what point her attitude towards us changed, that there was no affection. Um, I think there was a cordial kiss on the cheek for goodnight. I think there was some affection with Dad. I don't recall it being very much. It's not like we sat there and cuddled watching a movie together or anything like that, like I do with my daughter. With the babysitter turned reluctant stepmother, none at all that I recall. We would pose for photos, but... um. We weren't allowed to touch her daughter or call her our sister or anything like that. It must have been a really weird environment to grow up in. It is now that I look back at it. At the time, I guess it's all we knew, so you don't really realise. I remember when I'd visit friends for sleepovers and things, which I don't think happen often, but I was like intrigued to see how this is how this family operates and they're having fun and laughing together and there's affection and care and, yeah... It's really sad. I know, I know some of the freedom we were given was probably normal for kids back in the 80s, but it was also due to us not being wanted around, which is really sad. Jay left the marriage after six years. And what did your high school home economics teacher give you when your stepmother moved out? My home ec teacher, bless her... <laughs> told me that now that I was the woman of the house at, I think I was 13, um, she gave me some cookbooks and told me it was my duty to cook for my father. Were things easier at home after she left? Was it kind of yeah. things with your dad feel a bit more natural somehow? Yeah. yeah, I think my dad was quite heartbroken at Jay leaving, so there was that. And that was a feeling a little bit of my sister and I kind of looking after him a little bit and telling him it was okay. Or, but um, it was definitely so much freer once she left. It was, yeah, it was a good time for my sister and I. Your father wasn't single for long. He had a number of girlfriends and then married again in 1993. And in those years as a teenager, Chanel, like so much of what goes on for us as teenagers is trying to work out who we are in the world and mm -hmm. who's our example and what kind of adult are we going to be? And, mm. you know, was your mum in your thinking, do you remember? Was the question about her something that was present in, in your mind as a teenager? I don't think so. I think my defence mechanisms just had me kind of push her out to the peripherals. I do recall when we did have time with Nana Sims and we did get to talk about her and look at her photo albums. You know, we were actually allowed to feel every time we went, it's probably the first thing I would do, walk straight to the photo albums and open them and look at all the photos of my mum. But I also was aware it would make my Nana feel 
sad. She would get sad. So I didn't want, you know, there was, I guess in my young teenage mind, confusion around that because I always believed she would come back eventually. And now I, I can empathise what a mother must feel, the sorrow she must have felt. Were you a pretty independent kind of teenager? I was, yeah. And I, I rebelled a little bit against some of the tight reins that were... Maybe because I was the oldest, I'm not sure, because I know my siblings certainly didn't have as much um, restrictions around their freedom, but maybe it was also because they didn't trust me as much. I don't know. (laughs) What did you imagine your future might look like back then? Well, I did work experience in grade 11 at the police station, which is pretty funny for those who know me now. Nothing against police, (laughs) but it's just... (laughs) I'm not a very well-structured, disciplined person. (laughs) Um, And I did train to be a teacher and I thought that was the career I would end up falling into. But, um, yeah, life took a very different turn. And were you living away from home from a a young age while you were studying? Yeah, I left home at 17. My stepmother and I didn't get along at all. And... My father said that I would be the cause of his third marriage breaking down. So something needed to change. And although it was young, it was also this sense of freedom beyond what I'd experienced. So it was a good adventure in lots of ways. (laughs) You headed off to the US by yourself as still a young woman. What, Mm -hmm. What did you do there? I was a nanny, so I answered an ad in a local paper, so it didn't just go off with a backpack like I did in future travels. <laughs> Still a big thing to do to just head over to yeah. America by yourself. It was Whereabouts? big. I was 21, um, legal age in America. I flew into LA and then into Denver and then was picked up by my nanny family and taken to this sort of in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. It's a very different landscape than the one you would have been familiar with in the east coast of Australia. Yes, very different. A long way from the ocean, which I knew I'd struggle with, but it was beautiful. How did you handle the cold? (laughs) Um, With a lot of layers of clothing, I think. (laughs) I arrived in the springtime, so I naively, with an Australian naive point of view, went with my cotton clothing (laughs) and it snowed on the day I arrived in the middle of May. (laughs) So I had to go shopping pretty quickly. (laughs) But you do acclimatise. And so you were doing nannying over there in in the States and how were you spending your time when you weren't working with families helping them care for their kids? Well, the first family it didn't work out with, but then I found another family. There was some transition time in between where I was doing other things and house-sitting and working in a little new-age shop. And then found this other family and I did a lot of hiking. Uh, I did a lot of live music. There was a lot of, it was near Boulder, Colorado. There's a lot of really amazing music that comes through and shows are a lot cheaper there. And just had some good friends. You had a combi van. At one point, yeah. yeah I had many vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> and so where would you take off to? Where, where would you travel? Would you go with a set goal in mind or well, what? Usually when I nannied, so um, this particular mum was a lobbyist and only needed me for six months out of the year. So I would work pretty solidly for those six months and I waited tables as well and then save up money and then I would hit the road when she didn't need me anymore. So where I went, sometimes I would just hit the road and not know where I was going and just sort of choose a fork in the road. And I loved that kind of adventure and freedom. 
Um, you know, it didn't always work out, but <laughs> I've lived to tell the tale. And what animals were your travelling companions on that, <laughs> on those journeys? Well, I had a, a dog. He was my solid companion and protector, and he was amazing. At one point, um, a cat joined us. She wasn't planned. My friend had rescued a cat that was pregnant, and when I met her, she was this teeny tiny little kitten who only purred for me. And I just felt, I know that sounds insane, but she was the best travelling companion. We um, opened the butterfly window on the camper and she would come in and out of that wherever we were parked. Usually, because I always parked somewhere natural. I wasn't in cities or anything like that. And um, she would come hiking with me and my dog. And, you know, if, if we encountered another dog, she'd go and hide in the bushes for a minute and then come back out 100 metres down the road. She was amazing. <laughs> it sounds like this was a happy time for you these years in the States. In lots of ways, yeah. I always had cycles of depression, but I, you know, I still managed to function enough to be a nanny and look after kids. And on my weekends, I think I sometimes would shut out the world and it wasn't as crushing as some of my more recent... Were you in much contact with family back in Australia during that time? So when I first went over in 2000, I think I had an email address. I wasn't very good at calling very often because it was quite expensive. But when I was with the nanny family, I think I was allowed to call from their phone. So semi-regular, I think I probably wasn't very good at communicating because I would just sort of get absorbed in my adventures. My family were possibly hurt by that and I may have even been called self-absorbed or something like that. But, um, you know, it was a loving rapport between us. But you also, I guess, had the chance to have some distance and mm. find out who you were outside yeah. of that family unit. Yeah, which I think was crucial. While you were living away, were you aware of the police investigations that were very slowly continuing into your mother's disappearance? Not so much. I would, my mum's family would usually mention it in their emails to me. I don't think I knew the scope of it and I certainly didn't suspect my father. I think my auntie Pat probably told me one of the findings, you know, was murder by a known person. I think it was my defence mechanisms that were really good at denial in those days and just wouldn't actually have considered that as a possibility. Because there had been, uh, I think, two coronial inquests, there'd been excavations at your family home and mm -hmm. there had been these different findings that she had been murdered, a person, of an, a known person. Mm. You were doing investigations in your own way too. How were you trying to find out what had happened to your mum? What, what pathways were you using? I was going to psychics quite a lot, which I know to some people that's a bit unconventional. To me, that's perfectly normal. But um, it was also the only avenue that I could see that might bring me some answers. And I got lots of different answers. Um, it was just before I left Hawaii that one psychic was the first to ever say, I believe your mum was murdered. I can see him. If you show me a picture of your dad, I'll tell you if that's who I can see. And then I left Hawaii and I didn't sort of follow up on that. It was a friend of a friend. And I also consequently just shut that reading out of my mind. I completely forgot about it. I must have just, again, been in denial and not ready to face that possibility. You know, as you say, 
unconventional, but I think also completely understandable because mm. you've got this huge hole in the centre of your heart and mm. you're not getting answers from anywhere else. Mm. Was it a comfort to to go to someone with that question and think you might get an answer or would you leave those experiences with psychics feeling, I don't know, even more confused? I would definitely go with a lot of hope that I would get answers. And, of course, I was always seeking where was she. It was never a thought that she had actually wasn't still alive anymore. So no one ever came back in the earlier years and said, oh, she's here and there. And there was one psychic who said, um, this was in Colorado, who said, I see someone in your family going to jail for a very long time. Do you know who that would be? And I really didn't at that point. And I said no. And maybe when I said that, she then said that my mum was living in New Zealand and had a new family and didn't want to be found. And I, that didn't sit well with me. It really um, stirred up a lot of angst inside of me, which I feel now is because it wasn't the truth. But I believe that maybe she did see the truth and maybe didn't want to be the one to break it to me. I certainly wouldn't want to be that person. So was there a moment when you accepted or realised to yourself, she's gone, mum's gone? Um, It was when I was working on a boat and we were somewhere near Darwin, I think, and I was visiting with a friend and she doesn't consider herself psychic but had psychic ability from my perspective and believes that she could communicate with her mum who had passed over. And I showed her a photo of my mum and she immediately felt like she was being strangled. And then she felt that my mum was there and talking to her. So she very gently broke the news to me that she didn't believe my mum was alive anymore and that she believed that my father had actually murdered her. I was really resistant to hearing that and I thought, no, no, she's got it wrong, she's got it wrong. But at the same time, it was like that protective layer around me just cracked and couldn't hold me anymore in those lies and illusion and I could feel the truth of that in my being, that it was true. Podcast, broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Chanel, when you began, not so long ago, to think that your father might be responsible for your mother's death, in one sense it was shocking, but did it also 
chime in some senses with the sort of man you'd seen your father to be? Once I came into the realisation, it was a long process of, and I'm still in some ways assimilating it, but um, it was years and years of processing and trying to come to terms with it and still not wanting to believe it actually for a long time, especially when because I remained in my father's life for quite a few years afterwards. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't make sense that this was the dad that I knew because I had, I wasn't abused by him. Like I, I recognise now there was emotional abuse, but I wasn't aware of that, of that at the time. You know, I'd never been hit by him. I had not, never witnessed that I had memory of any other abuse by him to anyone else. But there was other little red flag moments, I guess, that started to jump out and be remembered and go, oh, okay. What kind of thing? There was one moment when I was 14 and we were driving home, I don't know where from, maybe netball or something like that, and I don't even remember what we were talking about. So I was, I guess, the boat rocker of the family where I started at quite a young age going, well, why don't we talk about my mum? And started asked, I would sometimes ask him questions about her and there was always this awkwardness and my sister would usually kind of get mad at me, I think. So I'm sure I probably must have asked him a question about my mum and he said, it's a shame your mum let herself go. She had such a pretty face. And as a 14-year-old, I didn't realise just how messed up that was. But as an adult, I'm like, oh, that is misogynistic at its finest. And that's a major red flag. But I, I rem- still remember the feeling of like sort of that grinding feeling in your solar plexus where something just didn't quite feel right. So that was one of the first cracks that I recall. As you say, you're starting to, to think, can this be true? Can this be the explanation? But you were still in your father's life. Mm. I mean, he hadn't been charged with anything. He hadn't been arrested. He's married. Mm. He's working. Life mm. is continuing for him. Mm. What was it like to be around him with that thought, that growing thought in your head? Am I allowed to swear? <laughs> it was a bit of a head fuck. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, it messed me up really badly. I would hold it together and play the game of pretense and happy families and then fall apart when I would leave and go back home and be dysfunctional for sometimes a couple of weeks afterwards. There was one time I fell apart at my sister's house because I just couldn't hold it together anymore and she, I think she just thought it was the pressure of being a single mum, which is also another major stress but um it was seeing my father and I didn't feel like I could tell her that I didn't feel like I could share with her what I had come to believe and I do have some regrets that I didn't maybe tell her sooner because she probably felt quite blindsided when I came out with the podcast in 60 minutes. Did you want to confront him at all? Was there a part of you that wanted to give voice to this feeling? Yeah there's a part of me inside that was definitely screaming and I was constantly weighing up how I would do it and how it would be gentlest for everyone else as well as myself and whether or not I was ready to hold myself in that. I knew I was probably going to lose my whole family. Um, And then there's a part of me that thought, well, that's not fair. Why should I lose my family? I didn't do it. I wrote him lots of letters, which I never sent. It 
pretty much took over my life, really. What about your your mum's family, her siblings, mm-hmm. and who'd wanted to know, who'd kept searching for mm-hmm. answers? How did they respond when you confided in them that this is how your thinking had changed? Yeah, so I visited them just after I came into that realisation and said to them, I believe it was my father that murdered my mum. And they were massively, massively relieved that I had come to that conclusion. And I think we probably all had a cry and a hug. And I have so much respect for them in how they handled themselves. And they never spoke badly about my father to me, which I imagine would have taken immense (laughs) self-discipline. And it was important to them that they didn't take him away as well. They just let us have, you know, they knew it would be hard to lose a mum and a dad. And was it also that they wanted you, I guess, to come to that mm. realisation yourself? Yeah, because definitely. Because as you were saying, how do you tell someone mm. that yeah. until they're ready to hear it or see it themselves? Yes, definitely. And I think they also didn't want to lose. They ended up losing my sister anyway, but I think they didn't want to lose their last connection to Lynn as well. In 2012, Detective Damien Loon, who was working on the investigation into your mother's disappearance, he wanted to meet with you. Mm. And what did he ask you to do, Chanel? So he <laughs> was very sensitive and towards the end of the day, he came forward with this idea he'd had and wondered how I felt about it, about being hypnotised. I was up for it. You know, I believe in that kind of thing. It was a bit obscure for a policeman yeah, to be you, suggesting were you it. Were surprised that this police officer was I suggesting think, that? What was his thinking? I think I just deepened in respect for him that he was willing to think outside the boxes. I think he just knew that they had tried everything else that they could within their power and wanted to try something else. He made it clear that anything I saw couldn't be used as actual evidence and that they were hoping it would lead to further evidence and he never said you know, my mum's body, but I think that's what he was implying. I struggled with feeling like I was betraying my father in doing so, but I also justified it by saying to myself that if he wasn't involved, then I wouldn't see anything that would convict him or tip the scales towards guilty for him or anything like that. So at this point, when the police asked you to consult with a hypnotist, your father and your sister and the Dawson side of the family didn't know that you were harbouring these questions yeah, about no. his guilt, that no. you were doing this in secret from, from them. Yeah. What happened on the, the day? What was it like to go and visit the hypnotist? What happened? It was really bizarre. Um, so the first visit to Sydney was to test me to see if I was, what do they use, susceptible to being hypnotised. And apparently I am, <laughs> or I was. So then they set a date for the actual appointment, picked up by police people and driven to a psychiatrist. I was in a comfortable chair. I think I was semi-reclined and I think it was something like, I don't know if I went downstairs or if he just counted or something and regressed me. I think the first time he did it, he probably touched on an age or something that wasn't traumatic. And then... I could see images playing out before me and he would have me describe that. And I could I could choose whether I spoke from my four-year-old self's perspective or from the adult who was witnessing this playing out. And there was a few things that didn't make sense logically. 
and he said, just press on, it's okay. Images would come quite clearly and then others were more hazy, like when you're trying to tune a radio and it's a bit fuzzy and then you kind of get it good for a second and then it goes fuzzy again, although probably no one tunes radios like that anymore. I'm really old school. Um, it was frustrating though because then it would go blank at points where I wanted to try to grasp it and maybe because I was putting pressure on myself to want so badly to have those answers that maybe it caused a bit of anxiety or whatever to not be able to see the whole thing. And were you seeing things newly? Were you seeing things that you hadn't consciously remembered yeah. before? Yeah. There was one point where he had me and my sister in the car and my mum was slumped in the front. And this is where one of the things that didn't really make sense, so I was seeing her to that side of me, whereas logically I knew that the passenger side would have been the other side. But that's where one of the times he said, don't worry, just keep going. And he said that's perfectly valid. Apparently he could tell by how my eyes were moving if I was seeing proper images or not. Um, I saw my father digging at one point with headlights. My memory is that it was beside the pool, but it's also possible that, you know, maybe he stopped there for a while and then went somewhere else and my brain has combined those memories as lots of things that our brains can do. I did see another person present afterwards, like sort of maybe minding my sister and I. And I don't know, if, again, if that was the same day or if it was a different day. And there were these memories that used to always come to me as flashes of my teddy bear or something outside on the ground and the front door. I don't know if it was my mum being driven off or if it was because I thought my mum was in that car or... I just wish I had all the answers. I wish I could ask my brain and it could just tell me what these things are and what they mean. It's a bit frustrating. I'm imagining that was an incredibly harrowing, draining process to mm. go through. Mm. It was. was. Was what you saw useful to the police, do you know? Not so much because I um, couldn't give a solid answer as to where her body may have been buried, which I think is what they were needing. Did it solidify for you the, the feeling that your father was responsible and that she was gone? Yeah. I mean, I, I still wanted to doubt what I was seeing, obviously, and I questioned if, you know, but um, it did solidify it in lots of ways. It made a lot of sense to me as to... Now I know the effects of trauma and things like that and I make more sense to myself now and I can be more compassionate with myself and not be as frustrated with myself and the way I do things sometimes. You became a mum yourself in, in 2014, Chanel. What sort of time was that in your life? 2013, I conceived my daughter and birthed her in 2014. I... I think I also had a lot of grief around the way I conceived her and not being in a loving partnership, but I look back now and it was an opportunity to become a mum and I might not have had that opportunity otherwise, so there's a blessing. I, of course, missed my mum more than anything because I, um, I had been a doula and I knew the importance of having good support. I knew how much new mums need support with a new baby, especially without a partner. So I, um, yeah, I grieved all again. I mean, I never stopped grieving, but it was new layers of grief. And also the fact that my beautiful daughter wouldn't have a grandmother or a grandfather, really. What 
was your reaction when you heard that a, a podcast series was going to be made about your mother's disappearance? What do you remember thinking about that? I think I was a little naive. I didn't know what a podcast was. <laughs> and I, throughout my, most of my life, I don't watch mainstream TV. So I, I think I was still a little bit oblivious to the extent that the story had reached in media. I was hopeful that it would bring answers and I felt compelled to be a part of it to honour my mum because I was still doing it somewhat um, covertly, I guess. In that you were still wanting to be able to maintain relationships with your dad and yeah. that side of the family. Yeah, mostly my sister. I was maintaining connection with that side of the family, mostly for my sister. Did you listen to the episodes as they came out as they were released each week? Yes, every week. And sometimes I was at uni, I was at uni those days, so sometimes I could get out and listen to it as soon as it came out. And what was that like, Chanel? It was, again, another surreal moment. I've got to get a better word than surreal, but going from listening to this and being in, in the big feelings of it all and then having to put on a brave face to go and pick up my daughter from kindy and act like everything was normal and try to be a happy mum. It must have felt very weird to have this incredibly personal, vulnerable story made public and mm. people have opinions about it and yeah. theories. And yeah. Were you aware of all of that conversation around the podcast? Sometimes I would read comments, but it would usually trigger me too badly. If people were respectful, I don't care what opinion they have. You know, different theories is fine. But when people... You know, obviously a lot of people feel very strongly about my father being a monster and things like that, and that still hurts, even though I understand where they're coming from. There's still that part of me, I guess, that has care and maybe some loyalty, though that's, I think, lessened. But um, I, I think what triggered me the most is when things would get reported that weren't accurate. <laughs> I have a real thing about that. <laughs> What did it mean for your relationship with your sister? So I did tell them I was participating. I, I guess I didn't know at that point in time, obviously no one knew that it was going to become so huge. I also didn't know that it was going to be fairly blatantly obvious that the people involved all believed it was my father. So I'd say there was a lot more tension between me and my father's side of the family after that. I don't think I saw them too many times from when the podcast aired. Yeah, there, I mean, there was always times when I'd meet up with the family where it felt there was all these unspokens. The way my family communicates very indirectly, which doesn't work for me or possibly behind my back. And I can feel when there's something going on, but I don't know. I didn't understand what it was. But yeah, I think I only saw them a few more times and then I couldn't pretend anymore. At the end of 2018, your father was arrested for the murder of your mother. Mm -hmm. What was going through your head as you watched that arrest on TV? I would have been given the heads up that it was happening, but only briefly before it actually happened or maybe even just after. Some messages were starting to pour in. I closed all the curtains and I just hunkered down in um, deep processing mode and I couldn't respond to people's messages and things like that. I remember when it was shown later on in the news, I was wanting to see the news, but I had my daughter and she, you know, very innocently would say, look, it's Papa and look, it's your mum. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, time for a bath and be trying to get her <laughs> occupied so I could listen to what was happening or 
um, yeah, seeing my dad taken off, taken off in handcuffs was really heartbreaking too. Did you go to the trial, Chanel? I did not, know. I didn't have childcare for my daughter, so it wasn't really an option. Had also um, just been in the major floods that were up in northern New South Wales and been hopping from short-term accommodation to short-term accommodation and I was trying to find us a long-term home. So I guess I made that a priority. When you heard that he had been found guilty, when you heard that verdict, what was the reaction like for you? Um, So I had been listening to the whole trial via video link and every second of it that I could, although ironically the reception was really bad because of the flooding, so there were times when I couldn't get to it, which was really frustrating, and still trying to be present to my daughter and meet her needs. But in the moment that he announced the verdict, I just picked up my daughter from Bush School at three o'clock and then a friend had walked across the bridge and taken her to the park. And so I still had the trial playing out in my hand while she was there and I was just like, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. She took her and um, it was only just shortly after that I heard the words, Chris Dawson, I find you guilty. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the words to explain the feeling really and it, you know, would have gone one way or the other. But either way felt really massive. So it wasn't anything as simple as a celebration? It wasn't for me, no. Or even when people would come up to me and say things like, don't worry, we'll get the bastard and stuff like that. It wasn't where I was at. It was just grief for me. Yes, he's done a horrible thing and yes, he deserves justice. And yes, I want very much for my family and myself to have closure. There needs to be justice for my mum. But the fact that he did it is still just so much grief and heartbreak for me personally that I wasn't in any way celebrating. And I don't think my mum's family were either. I think they were relieved. I think they were grateful that it had finally, after so many years, 40 years of waiting, come to that conclusion. But I don't think any of them were rejoicing. You tell a story in the book that on that day of the verdict, when a friend took your daughter and you then went to pick her up in the park, Mm -hmm. what was she doing? So a baby bird had fallen out of the nest and... My daughter and the two other little kids that were there were kind of arguing about who would hold it. And my friend ended up going, and my daughter and I were waiting for wires, the volunteer wildlife services, to arrive. And there was a light misting of rain. It was slowly getting a little bit darker, right on dusk. And my daughter was sitting on the ground and the little baby bird hopped over, hopped on her lap and then up to her shoulder or something. And she, she's a bit of an animal whisperer, probably a little bit Steve Irwin style where she sometimes doesn't leave them alone when she should. But um, (laughs) it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And it felt so sort of symbolic that there's this little baby bird, fragile and needing nurturing. And there was that part inside of myself that was so fragile and needing nurturing. And I had to sort of put my feelings aside to be present to my daughter yet again, you know, I, I don't know how much she knew about what was going on. I think she knew there was a trial or something and it was to do with her Nanaline. But, of course, she's only young. She doesn't comprehend the vastness of it all. You weren't there in person for the trial. Why did you go to the sentencing? Why did that feel the right thing to do? Uh, so we were given the option with victim impact statements to not write one at all, 
you're able to write one and send it just to the judge to read alone. You're able to write one and have someone else read it out for you in court and either be there or not be there. Or you can write it and be there yourself. And I knew it was the most difficult option for me to choose. I knew it would be massive to see my father in person, but I also knew it was probably the last chance I'd ever have. It was my last chance to be able to speak my truth and him have to sit there and listen. You know, I could show up in the jail and try to speak to him and he might refuse to see me. So I feel like there's something really healing too about being witnessed. And I'm, you know, that's probably why they do victim impact statements. It's a chance for that person to feel a bit more empowered in the situation. Did you look at one another as you took the stand? So I was already seated in the courtroom and then my father was brought in and I started crying. And then I did my auntie and uncle's victim impact statements. I was anxiously (laughs) clutching some (laughs) lavender and I walked up. I was sure I was going to trip or something. I was so (laughs) anxious and took the stand or whatever it's called, sat down at the desk and my father turned and just stared at me. I'm told it was for quite a long time. I I have no idea. It was timeless for me in that moment. Everything except for him ceased to exist really. And what was the heart of what you said that day? Uh, That he had no right to take her away. Yeah, I don't understand that level of selfishness, why he couldn't have just got a divorce and let those of us who loved her keep her. To take away your children's mother, take away someone who's so loved by her friends and family. And I don't understand that. I really don't. And I don't think I ever will. I feel it took enormous courage from you to, to do that, to appear in court and, and say that truth. Thank you. It was. <laughs> it did take enormous courage, I think. And it, it drew on everything I had, really. Uh, I was really grateful. Some really beautiful friends took my daughter, so they took her. And I was able to go to Sydney on my own, which in itself is massive, just to even have the flight without having to be a mum and tend to her needs. Um, as soon as I finished, and I didn't mean any disrespect for the process, but I just needed to get out of there. I think people understood that. I needed nature, I needed real air. I don't like buildings without real windows and things anyway, but I couldn't be in that room with my father anymore. Does it feel like that was an important step on this journey for you? It felt like an important step, yeah. It was... (laughs) I don't want to compare myself to someone who's in the line of duty and going off to war, but that's what it felt a bit like. It felt a little bit like that, a sense of duty and of knowing that I needed to do it. Is there any part of you that that feels a new chapter is now beginning with his conviction and jailing and with your book? Does it feel like you might be moving into the next chapter? I feel like I am, yeah. And I, I've noticed little things. I looked at a photo of my mum and for the first time didn't just cry. I actually felt, you know, love and fondness and sort of a sense of beauty in looking at her photo. So I'm hopeful that that will keep evolving the more I keep feeling the grief that it will move through and my daughter can have a mum who's not sad so frequently and we can celebrate and have more joy again. Well, I was thinking your mum's middle name was Joy. Yeah. And I imagine what she would want more than anything is for you 
to feel joy and and your daughter. I believe she would want that for us, absolutely. And I've been saying for years that I want to feel more joy, but I haven't been able to access it. So I do feel like this book is an important step in getting the story literally out of me and um, feeling all the feels. It was really massive to have to feel it all again and relive it all again. So it's, you know, it's a good form of therapy for sure. <laughs> Thank you all for witnessing <laughs> I think about that, that beautiful story about your daughter in the park with the little bird mm-hmm. and all of the layers of that, including the fact that you are being this incredible mother to her. Thank you. Sometimes. Even, well, <laughs> the best any of us can ever do is sometimes. But having your own mum taken and then not Mm. having someone in her place, Mm. you're finding that somehow within yourself to be that sort of mother to her. Yeah, thank you. One of my friends pointed that out to me and I had to acknowledge that, that without a nurturing role model, I've still managed to be a sometimes nurturing mother. (laughs) And I do thank my mum's genes for that. (laughs) Well, Chanel, I wish you both so much joy in the future as well as the sadness that I know will always be there. Thank you. Thank you so much for being our guest on Conversations. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Podcast, broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. And Chanel Dawson's book, written with Ali Pascoe, is called My Mother's Eyes. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.